0: You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me, as always, is Christopher Parr, director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hi. Hi. Uh, Chris has gathered his favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week.
1: Hello and welcome to Honey Badger's Can't Comfortably Digest Cylinders, the only podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that have not been made up and if you say they have, we'll come round to your house and record over all your VHS tapes. I'm your host Chris Parr and joining me, as she does every week, is Piper Dawes, director of the Lockhart Centre for Actually Genuine Inquiry. Hi Pipes! Hi, Chris. Piper has gathered her favourite facts from the Centre's activity this week and is very generously going to share them with us today. How exciting. So what have you and or the Centre put up to this week, Piper?
0: Yeah, well, after the success of our first uh, rockin' SCAR night and lecture events post-lockdown, we've been excited to get back to normal, Chris. Uh, We've discovered a bunch of facts in the last week since we've been able to do our research in the field again and in meadows, adventure playgrounds and public gardens. Uh, We've started going through the fact archives and organizing by how fun they are rather than alphabetically. And Carla, the old IT girl, has even been reinstated. Uh, though it would have been good to have her before during the Zoom calls, as I still haven't figured out how to change my face back from being a Mediterranean hunting crab.
1: Right, well, yes, that would be an issue. Uh, you say you've sorted the facts by how fun they are. Is that like, do you have like a, a rating system from like 1 to 10? Or like 1 being not fun at all and 10 being, wow, I've just come in my pants?
0: Do you know what? That would have been a really good idea, Chris. But no... Um, no, it's literally, literally like, you know, like, you know, like the alphabet, it's, it's not numerical, is it, Chris? It's just, it just goes in one long stream.
1: Uh, no, it's, um, it's, it's, it's alpha stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So it basically, it goes like that, but, but, but in a sort of like, um, uh, spectrum of emotion, (laughs) like a spectrum of emotion instead of, instead of like. Like uh, like 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 letters, it just it just it goes from happy to shit.
1: But how do you like gradate between the different bits of the spectrum? Uh,
0: I mean, we don't. I, I I think to be honest, Chris, I think we were. What what happened is, I mean, we were so excited to get back to work, we were in a bit of a fever state. And now I'm talking <laughs> about this out loud. It doesn't seem like that great an idea, but I'm really excited to be here and to be doing this again. Um, uh, uh, like, you know, going back to the actual fact archives, dusting off the spiders and shit and just messing about with them a bit. Let's be honest. That's what I was doing, really. Just like putting them in a different order for fun.
1: Oh, well, that all sounds very exciting. But shall we do some facts
0: Yes, in the words of Prince Buster, if he was an academic and not a Jamaican singer songwriter and producer who influenced and shaped the course of Jamaican contemporary music and created a legacy of work that would be drawn upon later by reggae and ska artists, shake up long, shake up strong. Stay on your feet and you can't go wrong, whether you whine or grind or discuss facts on a weekly podcast.
1: Words to live by. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to the human mind. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of humanity's fears and the summit of its knowledge. This is the dimension of facts. It is an area which we call Fact One.
0: For a short period, the Swiss Army fork was used by the Swiss Army.
1: So the Swiss Army knife, so-called because in a surprise twist, it is a knife used by the Army of Switzerland, is a popular multi-purpose tool which comes with various attachments, including knives, a corkscrew, other different knives, a can opener, alternate varieties of knives one of those weird hooky bits that's used to gut fish or something I don't know I'm not a pescatarian Swiss Army officer and a whole bunch of other shit too but I haven't actually heard of a fork attachment on a Swiss Army knife what the fork is going on here Piper?
0: Right, yeah, so I mean, I am going to sort of just um, uh, re- recapitulate on that history that you've given there, Chris, because it is very good, but you know we need a little more details for this fact. So uh, in the late 1800s, Swiss army requested some more compact field tools. Uh, Swiss government, being the leaders of one of the most inventive and resourceful na- nations in the world, decided to commission companies to make a to- handheld tool to do all the things a soldier might need to do day to day without the need for an arsenal of separate tools, leaving more space in their bags for guns and bullets and other people killing stuff. Swiss company Victorinox took up the challenge and so came the Swiss Army knife. It was great because you could, um, as you say, Chris, you could, you could open a can, pick your teeth, which is what the attachment you were talking about was for, um, open wine bottles, cut up food, all with one single tool, which is great. So yeah, the Swiss Army knife proved crazy popular among the troops, particularly the ones who wanted to open some wine after picking their meal of tin beans out of their teeth. But there was one thing missing in this ingenious portable device. After all, they could open the tin of beans, but how could they eat them, Chris? With a fork, of course. So a lot of these Swiss soldiers would end up carrying their Swiss Army knife in one pocket and a cumbersome household fork in the other. I regret to report, however, there were many soldiers who didn't think to bring a fork from home and spent many a desperate night trying to eat beans off a knife. So the soldiers moaned to their superiors, some complaining of the painful four-pronged sores in their thighs from landing on the fork during training exercises and others of the cuts in their mouths from the useful but limited Swiss Army knife. They wanted the convenience of both a knife and a fork and they wanted the Swiss government to fork out for it. Being the leaders of one of the most inventive and resourceful nations in the world, once again they leapt at the opportunity.
1: Oh, so this wasn't like a, a fork attachment on a Swiss Army knife. This was a whole separate thing.
0: Yeah. So they were. The, yeah. Well, I mean, it may have just been the, the 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 people in the Swiss Army. The what are they called? The the, the soldiers. The people. They probably said. Well, why can't we have a Swiss Army fork? And they probably took them literally, but that's okay. You know, you've got to start somewhere, Chris.
1: I mean, yeah, a fork attachment wouldn't work because you couldn't use the fork and the knife at the same time due to them both being an attachment on the same tool. So, yeah, they wanted the whole separate thing. So they made the Swiss Army fork, and then Swiss Army officers had both a Swiss Army knife and a Swiss Army fork, and everything was fine, and everybody was happy, and everything was wonderful. Shall we move on to the fact two?
0: Well, yes and no. The Swiss Army fork was its own unit, so it was a fold-out set of forks. It had a normal four-prong table fork, a carving fork for carving meat, a three-prong oyster fork, and a cocktail fork for placing olives and other garnishes on cocktails. It was an overnight sensation, by which I mean the soldiers loved it for about a single night. Then they kind of just left them at home or at the barracks. The novelty wore off pretty quickly, to be honest. And most soldiers went back to just taking the knife. It wasn't worth the extra pocket space needed. And to be honest, it wasn't all that often soldiers needed to make a cocktail on the battlefield anyway. Owners of the Swiss Army fork also quickly realized that having to own both the Swiss Army fork and the Swiss Swiss Army knife negated the convenience of having all your tools in a single device. So almost immediately, this ingenious device was forgotten about by nearly everyone who ever had one.
1: Yeah, this kind of reminds me of those weirdos back in the day who would have both an iPhone and a BlackBerry.
0: Oh my god, I'd forgotten about them.
1: Unless you're a drug dealer, you don't need two phones.
0: I mean, maybe they were drug dealers, Chris.
1: (laughs) Well, no, because I knew people who were just normal non-drug dealing people who had an iPhone and a BlackBerry just because they were both you know, like, fashionable items to possess.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It's capitalism gone mad.
0: It is, it is. I feel like, though, the Swiss Army fork isn't so much peak capitalism as much as the iPhone and BlackBerry scenario.
1: But couldn't they have had, like, a detachable fork on the Swiss Army knife or a detachable knife on the Swiss Army fork or a clip that you could use to stick both together? So you only had to have like one thing in your soldier bag, and then you take it out and you unclick them, and you've got two things.
0: Right, that does sound like a better idea, Chris. And, and you know, if 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 we'd have been in charge of uh, in charge of this, I'm sure we'd have done a much better job. But to be honest, I think I think because because Victorinox, the company that made the Swiss Army knife, were at the behest of the the needs of the Swiss Army themselves, and the Swiss Army literally just said, "We need a Swiss Army fork." They went all right, we'll fucking give you one.
1: Yeah, I then realise that soldiers don't really spend much of their time making martinis. I mean, if they did, I'd join the army in a, a heartbeat, but...
0: I wouldn't go that far, Chris, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, manufacturers of the Swiss Army fork ceased production, recalled the units, and advised soldiers to use their imagination or, in a pinch, their hands to eat the food in the event cutlery is not provided on the battlefield. Interestingly, the fact that the soldiers got, the, got what they wanted and rejected it spurred them on to find, a new, find new ways to eat food while field training and in battle. Most learned to quickly fashion forks from sticks. Others returned to their old habits of bringing a fork from home, though making sure to wrap them in medical bandages to re- reduce injury during action. And the rest, I don't know, just sort of sucked, on the, sucked the beans up through their mouths or something.
1: Hold on, you said that they suggested soldiers eat food using their imagination. How would that work?
0: Have you ever seen Hook?
1: You mean the Peter Pan film starring Robin Williams? Yeah. Yes.
0: You know The Lost Boys?
1: The other film about vampires. No, wait, no. (laughs) So you want me to think about one film and a separate film at the same time?
0: No, The Lost Boys are characters in Hook, you little shit.
1: Oh, right, okay. In the way that the name of the film, The Lost Boys, is a reference to the characters in peter pan okay yes i am with you piper
0: carry on okay so uh the the characters the lost boys in the film hook um don't have any food at one point in the film and uh um older peter pan who's there played by robbie Williams. um he's like where's all the food and they're like oh can't you see it it's in front of us and actually really if you think about it if you look back at it you know knowing about sort of you know the commentary on on um, you know childhood poverty that they're talking about is actually quite sad. But what happens is he he uses his imagination, and they're just like they're just like look look whatever you imagine, it's here, and you can think about tasting it, and it's almost the same as having it. So they're, they they suddenly um, Robin Williams who's playing older Peter Pan in film Hook, he's like looking around at all of the empty like tables and stuff, and then suddenly he uses his imagination and he sees all this food and then he sees them eating that imaginary food um uh, obviously it's like um in real life there's real food there that they've like cut to on the on like using edits but like in, in the film it's supposed to be like he's using his imagination and basically like he he goes oh my god i can i can i can actually taste it um so with that with that in mind if you keep that in mind chris um basically that's not what i'm talking about at all what i'm talking about is <laughs>
1: No, that wouldn't make any fucking sense because the soldiers had food. What I'm asking is how they would convey the food to their mouths using their imagination.
0: Listen, this is my point, right? Take all of that stuff that I've just told you and lock it away in a bit of your brain you can't ever access again. So why bother saying it? Well, because I don't want you to get sidetracked again and think I mean something I don't. What I mean is that these soldiers were told to use their imagination in how to eat the food. They, so, so, oh, right, so you haven't got any knives and forks. Well, fucking use your imagination. Go and find something. They had knives. Well, they have got knives. That is true. That is true. <laughs> that is very true. Right, so they, 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 they were like, right, fucking use your imagination. Go and get a bloody a small stick.
1: But that's not your imagination, that's a stick that exists.
0: I feel like maybe they meant ingenuity.
1: Yes, maybe this has been an issue of semantics the whole time.
0: Yeah, and it is obviously like issues with translation and stuff from, uh, from Swiss, but like, and definitely not my fault at all.
1: <laughs> anyway, um, after that quite lengthy tangent. Right, so just to bring us back round to the relevant fact... Uh, They stopped manufacturing the Swiss Army fork. So companies love bringing back defunct products as marketing ploys. Nokia re-released their popular 3310 mobile phone in 2017. So everybody could play Snake as they already could on their smartphones. And Nintendo charged exorbitant sums of money for freely available ROMs of classic games dressed up as their NES and SNES consoles. Could we see a similar resurgence of the Swiss Army fork?
0: Well, here's the thing, Chris. Here's, here's the tea, as some people would put it. It's kind of already happened um, in, in a couple of ways. Some fanatics of the, the decommissioned Swiss Army fork have tried adding to the design to make it a more viable product. So um, a collector of antique Swiss inventions took apart his Swiss Army knife and his Swiss Army fork and attempted to combine, combine the two in one handy tool, thinking it might resolve the previous issues and he can make his millions out of the Swiss Army. So, we talked about this, Chris, and you know they've had the idea already, and I just didn't want to spoil it for you, so we're here now. So unfortunately, the the final product ended ended up being about three inches thick. And when trying to prepare and eat food, he found it took hours longer than usual due to repeatedly having to take out the knife to cut, put it away, take the fork out, hold the food, then get the knife out again to cut. So he kind of gave up, threw it in the bin, having completely destroyed the value of two perfectly good collector's items. There have been technological advancements since the 1800s, thankfully.
1: There's been a few, yeah.
0: Yeah, a couple, mate. A couple. I'm going to just focus on one at the moment. Yeah, that meant like a a possible return to the idea of combination cutlery, which is a term that I've coined. Or combilatory. That's definitely better. Yes, you should do PR. (laughs) Um, This has been met with pushback. Combi cutlery, that'll do. Oh, bloody hell. There it is. I mean, he always gets there in the end, doesn't he, guys?
1: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) yeah. That's a crisp, par guarantee. I'll get there in the end.
0: So <laughs> we going to tell all the girls. <laughs> but this has been met with pushback from a lot of people from Switzerland who see it as plagiarising Swiss ingenuity. Um, most recently, Gabriel Boucher, open, uh, owner of one of the largest engineering companies in Switzerland and a high-profile fo- high sponsor of the Swiss government's Department of Technology, filed a lawsuit against dead chicken purveyors, KFC, for inventing the spork, uh, a suspiciously similar invention to the Swiss Army knife and indeed the Swiss Army fork. However, it was quickly thrown out of court when it was pointed out that the spork actually took the technology and advanced it by actually combining cutlery, uh, something that the Swiss Army inventions or subsequent collectors, as mentioned before, had never actually patented. And so the Swiss Army fork, pinnacle of Swiss engineering, was lost and superseded by small and infuriatingly simplistic plastic spoon fork things, which everyone loves for some reason.
1: Yeah, they clearly misunderstood the difference between plurality and hybridity in going after the spork there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just think they were drunk on cultural identity and power. (laughs) I just (laughs) This is what happens when you combine nationalism and plastic-based cutlery, Chris. It never goes well.
1: It is, yes. We've seen it a hundred times. Many a right-wing political party has been brought down by its obsession with plastic cutlery. It happened to you, Kip.
0: It could happen to you. (laughs) 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 Let
1: this be a lesson to you. (laughs) (laughs) So we've talked about the Swiss Army knife and the Swiss Army fork. But anybody who has ever eaten food will know that the knife and the fork are not the only utensils available. Right up there with the knife and fork in the pantheon of cutlery, residing at the peak of the Mount Olympus of things you eat food with, is the spoon. Was or
0: is there a Swiss Army spoon? Well, it's weird that you should mention the spoon, Chris. Because, like, yeah, well, one private first class soldier in the Swiss army during a focus group designed to improve morale and kind of float ideas amongst the troops after the dramatic. Oh, well, they had focus groups in the 1880s. They did. They were, they, I told you, Swiss people, man, pioneers. Well, yeah, they've got the clocks, they've got
1: the cheese, and they've got the focus groups.
0: Yep. Yeah. yeah. So they had this focus group. This is designed to sort of improve morale. Uh, in the troops after the dramatic failure of the Swiss Army fork.
1: Sorry, Piper, was it dramatic?
0: I mean, I'm, I'm adding a lot of flair to this because, you know, after all, it is cutlery we're discussing, So, <laughs> So they, 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 what well, they came out of this focus group, one, one private first-class first class soldier suggested the government should bring them a Swiss Army spoon. It's not clear whether or not this was a serious suggestion, though, because the group kind of fell about laughing, and the me- meeting fizzled out after that, but the... the the, the, the Swiss collector and would-be inventor of the, let's call it the Swiss Army, NORC, um did try jamming a spoon in before giving up completely. Uh, unfortunately, it wouldn't fit. The contraption wouldn't close with it in, and he almost lost a finger in a soup based accident during the primary testing phase. Uh, of course, to him, the later invention of the spork was taken as a personal insult, which he spoke about at length in an article for Technologist magazine whose main image for the article was him looking all grumpy and holding an example spork pointing from his fist like he was somehow flipping off KFC with their own invention. A damning image, I'm sure you'll agree.
1: Okay, so Swiss Army knives aren't just knives, corkscrews and weird hooky bits that do something, I don't know. Some models include ballpoint pens, laser pointers and USB sticks. One commemorative model even included a replica sonic screwdriver, the tool used by the fictional time traveler Doctor Who. Are there any even more exciting or even stranger attachments that I or our listeners may not be aware of? Yes. Good. Next question.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so the the Swiss army knife and its various incarnations, as some of, you know, you've pointed out a lot of them here, um, it's it's such a masterpiece of Swiss engineering that it pretty much covers all bases. The standard models, the Spartan and the Tinker, have pretty much everything you'd need as an ordinary, everyday Spartan or Tinker.
1: Sorry, Spartan? Yes. Right, you see now i'm imagining everybody who owns a spartan model shouting this is sparta when they use their swiss army knife
0: they do they have to they're not actually allowed to buy it until they've said it they've they've got to prove that they've said that (laughs) oh i've got to uncork this wine bottle this is sparta yeah, before every use. Otherwise, it locks up and won't let you. <laughs> yeah, I've got a got this fish or something. I don't know. This
1: is Sparta.
0: <laughs> so it's got the, the both these models. These are the main ones, the standard ones. That not not even with all the extras and shit. They've got everything on it, man. Like um, whether you're a tinker or a fucking Spartan, got a knife, a wood saw, Phillips head screwdriver, all that bollocks. Uh, and the, the most heavy, mo- the most tool heavy model they do. Uh, the Swiss Champ, includes more saws, a magnifying glass, fish scaler, fuck tons. I'm sorry, you say more saws? More saws. Well, you know, the the original model... A multitude of saws. Yeah, the original has like a wood saw. And then, so you want, you know, if you're not... You might not want to carve wood with your pocket knife.
1: You might want a carve bone. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Good to know that Victorinox is catering to... The very lucrative serial killer market. They're doing God's work according to the serial killers.
0: <laughs> All of this is is on their website, Chris. So like, you know, this is the stuff that we already know. But there is.
1: Well, I asked for things we might not be aware of. I could just like I could just go to their website and find this out for myself, Piper. You're not answering my actual <laughs> Why are we even fucking doing this podcast if all you're gonna do is read from the fucking website? I thought you'd say, Oh, they've got like a fucking interdimensional portal gun or like a feather.
0: I'm not done. I was recapping the stuff that you might if if our listener hadn't for some reason hasn't been through the entire list on on their website, then I was just recapping that, just so they've got that in the bag. They know that now. Right. There is a larger model of the Swiss Army knife, which you can request to purchase via email. It's uh, almost three foot long and 11 inches wide. The Alpha Swiss Champ Patriarch model was designed for a charity auction to raise funds for Swiss Army veteran thigh injuries. and uh, includes jaws of life, forceps, a solar powered bandsaw and a fully functioning v- Vuzela. It's like the, the, likely the primary target audience is men.
1: Yeah, men who are compensating for something.
0: Yeah, or who expect to rescue women in labour from car accidents and celebrate their own heroics by making annoying noises at World Cup football matches.
1: A.K.A. men who are compensating for something.
0: Oh, yeah. So it's <laughs> amazing it's not more popular than it is. <laughs> Swiss Army knife manufacturer Victorinox described the Alpha Swiss champ patriarch model as... The pinnacle of masculine excellence, the ultimate display of gigantic manhood. Although admittedly, there might be something lost in translation there.
1: Oh, they know their audience. Nothing lost in translation there. They know exactly who they're selling that to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so there's clearly some fair breed attachments to the standard Swiss army knife. If you or the Lockhart Centre for Actually Genuine Inquiry could add your own attachment to the standard Swiss Army knife, what would that be?
0: Right. I mean, as a general use multi-tool... The various incarnations of the Swiss Army knife is fairly thorough, to be honest, Chris, but something that arts didn't think about is the compromises that have to be made when your primary business ethos is producing all-rounder multi-tools, so like something for everyone, you know. And um, There'll always be something left out if you want it for a specific job, right? And if there isn't, the tool becomes bulky and less portable very quickly. So we at the center decided during one of our morning fact-centric coffee-ridden powwow scrums, Uh, to come up with job-specific Swiss Army tools. So here's the best one we came up with. Um, It's called the Swiss Army Junkie Knife. Now, I'll be honest, the standard Swiss Army knife models are pretty good for providing everything you need for shooting up. Uh, the little scissors help with opening the baggie. If you've got the jitters, uh, they can also be useful for snipping fabric or t- tubing for tourniquets. Uh, the nail file's perfect for crushing up chunky bits. And the wider knife can be used in a pinch to cook up the goods. Uh, but we came up with the junkie knife, taking all those needs and providing the perfect tool for the job. The standard mini scissors are still in place, but this time, of course, they're safety scissors. Uh, there's a little spoon in there for cooking up with a handy lighter, which pops out at the right angle underneath. A sort of mini version of a meat tenderizer for making sure your drugs are nice and powdery. Uh, And last but by no means least, a handy reusable syringe. Uh, We did think about adding detachable hot knives when you fancy something a little different, but this is a design for a specific use tool after all, so we thought that might be straying too far into the original purpose of the Swiss Army knife.
1: Oh, that'll be great for one of your notorious heroin benders, won't it, Piper? I mean, it's probably what led to your whole organising facts by how fun they are thing that actually made no sense. I mean, be honest with us, Piper. Did you go on the heroin bender after the centre's scar night?
0: Well, when when you're trying to come up with ideas for uh, for things like a new Swiss army knife that hasn't been thought of before, you do have to sort of draw on real life experiences.
1: On personal experiences.
0: And personal experiences potentially, but not definitely. Um, if you if you could have like some attachments that they haven't got on army knives, like what would you have?
1: Uh, well, I've already mentioned my idea for a detachable fork. Yes, right, that's my billion dollar idea. I've got a right to Victor Rinox, whatever they're really called. Dear Swiss Army Company, I forgot on your name. Have you thought? Of a detachable fork. Love Chris. <laughs> another idea might be a second smaller Swiss Army knife that comes out of the main one. And that could have an, another even smaller Swiss Army knife that comes out of that one. Etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Why? In case you need to do small things <laughs> with your Swiss Army knife. It's
0: weird obsession with recursion, Chris, and I don't understand it.
1: Like, maybe you've got a fish that you need to gut with the weird hooky bit, but it's really small. Right. And the normal weird hooky bit is too big. If you gutted that fish with that thing, you'd have no fish left. So you get out your, your, your even littler Swiss army knife with the even littler hooky bit, and it's like, well, this might be okay. But I'm still concerned about obliterating the fish. So you get out the smaller one. Oh, and it's it's the right size. I mean, it's like Goldilocks. Oh, they could call it the Goldilocks model? Because you've got like the big one and then the smaller one and then the even smaller one. And one of them will be just right. Like in the story about the girl called Goldilocks, who has like the bear's porridge and one of them is just right and the other ones make her get eaten by bears or something. So that's my idea.
0: I love it, I love it. I think it's great, Chris. I mean, it just, it, it, I it, it does it does sort of um, just follow on from every other sort of recursive thing you seem to say on this show, but that's that's okay. I mean, I, I like your idea equally to mine, Chris.
1: I mean, I feel like you probably like your idea more than mine, given that your idea allows you to take more heroin.
0: Got facts now, Chris, I'm back in the office, it's fine.
1: There once was a podcast that was totally true, revealing facts that nobody knew. It was entirely non-fiction, though somewhat lacking in diction. Cor blimey, is that their fact too?
0: Someone has invented the world's most illegible font.
1: There are quite literally 20 billion fonts, or typefaces, as they're actually known. I know that there are 20 billion, because I spent all last night counting them. You're welcome. There's dependable but boring Times New Roman, Ariel, the only typeface visible from low Earth orbit, the manifestation of all that is wrong with humanity, Comic Sans, and loads of others that can make your typings look like olden days writing the Jurassic Park sign, and even future space words. But what all these typefaces have in common is that they're basically legible, except for windings. But who uses windings, right? What the font is going on here, Piper?
0: So having spent... Most of his academic career being told legibility and visibility are everything, while simultaneously having it drilled into him that notions of controversy, contrarianism, irony, and innovation trump all rules, freshly graduated New Jersey-based graphic designer Vincent Cameron Poe, understandably full of confusion and frustration, decided to create a typeface that couldn't be read by anyone. Good. Good for them
1: it's a living i suppose so who is this vincent cameron poe did you say yeah and how did he go about doing this this very useful and sensible project that will have a great use and sense
0: right well i can i'm detecting a slight hint of sarcasm here chris no oh well that's all right then Vincent Cameron Poe minored in psychology at Rutgers University, where he learned about the importance of innovation and taking people by surprise in saturated advertising markets. This was at odds with his understanding of the rules of printed media. So he decided to throw himself into using psychology to strip apart the connections between text and how we pr- process written language and devised experiments to find exactly what parts of each letter of the alphabet helps with legibility. And what happens if those parts were removed?
1: Right, Yes. Yeah, so this, uh, this kind of makes a sort of sense, I guess. I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing an academic would get up to. No offence. None taken. Like, if you take the sideways line from a capital A, then you can still kind of see that it's an A. And if you took out one of the, the, the slanty bits, then you could still see that it's an A. But if you took out both slanty bits, it would just be a sideways line. Same with B. I mean, if you just have the two curvy bits, you'd still make it out as a B. But If you remove the curvy bits, it's just a standing up line. But now I'm just imagining that all Vincent Cameron Poe is doing is just turning all the letters into lines. Is it just lines, Piper? Is that all it is? Just lines?
0: It's no, it's it's not. It's a lot more interesting than that, I promise.
1: I hope so. Otherwise, our listeners are gonna be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah. we begin with letters. Dear honey badgers can't comfortably digest cylinders. It's just lines. Love, listener. <laughs>
0: So Poe also looked at what makes less popular fonts difficult to read, um, such as allowing design elements to take over the lines and curves of the letters themselves, like with criminally overused emo font bleeding cowboys, uh, and the tendency to extend parts of the letters themselves over other letters, like with the criminally overused emo font bleeding cowboys, and included those features in his typeface design. The final product, which he calls Tragic Sans, is infuriating and frankly insulting to look at. Following precisely zero predefined conventions for type legibility and almost more infuriating being an over overtly serifed font despite the name, Tragic Sans looks remarkably like what would happen if someone set fire to the Magna Carta, doused the flames with manure, and left it out during a thunderstorm near a tree which gets struck by lightning, dropping twigs and detritus all over the page, which is then laminated, cut into small pieces, and handed to a sugar-hyped child who's asked to reassemble it.
1: Well, those are strong words indeed.
0: They are hench words.
1: So was it tragic sands? you said he called it?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So this exists now. He has achieved his very reasonable goal of creating an illegible typeface, which
0: is good. I suppose. Absolutely a reasonable goal, yeah. Uh,
1: So given that this is now happening, that we are living in a world in which this is a thing, which everybody is happy about, what is Vincent Cameron Poe doing with it now, that this is a thing that is happening now, in this world now?
0: (laughs) Well, the thing is, Chris, I mean... He isn't doing anything with it. Um, Tragic Sounds was ultimately unsuccessful and almost completely rejected as a useful typeface. Poe, having been shunned by the mainstream design industry, uh, now spends his time working freelance, full-time, designing logos for death metal bands.
1: Oh, yeah, because they're, like, totally indecipherable. They're, like, just a mess of spikes and drippings. And you ask... The neck beard with it on the teacher, what he says, and he goes, Oh, it's a Finnish flare metal band called Prolapse kangaroo Anus. And I wish I'd never asked.
0: Yeah, I mean it is it's I think we can both agree that it is a natural career progression for for um, Vincent Cameron Pro.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the question that has been percolating through my mind throughout this fact and I'm sure it's been percolating through the collective mind of our many listeners, is simply, why? Why is Vincent Cameron Poe doing this to us? Why? Why? What hurt you, Vincent Cameron Poe? What typeface-based tragedy befell you at a young age? to drive you to this behaviour. Why, Piper? Why?
0: Right. Well, I mean... you can can only sort of judge so much, uh, sort of do so much guesswork into how a a graphic designer's mind works, Chris. But um, we think it might come down to the way universities' courses work in America. Uh, Needing a major qualification and a minor qualification means that often combinations of subjects can clash in the ways of looking at the world. When Poe chose his minor subject psychology, he thought it would be advantageous to understand how graphics and printed media is processed and received by human minds. Um, Instead, he spent three years being bombarded with contradictions graphic designs often perceived as art stripped of humanity for monetary gain so understanding this from a wholly psychological standpoint with humanity emotional perception and sympathy for the human condition is always going to leave one with a sense of confusion helplessness and ultimately anger at an unjust world so in a way we think vincent cameron poe designer of tragic sands the world's most illegible font just kind of fucking hates the world and wants to see it burn So he's basically
1: the typeface-based Joker from The Dark Knight. So other than the indecipherable logos of death metal bands with names like Prolapse Kangaroo Anus or Bloody Rotting Anus or Anus Full of Blood or Anus but with an umlaut over the U, what other uses does Vincent Cameron Poe foresee for his typeface.
0: Well, Poe stated in an interview when controversy was arising around the newly birthed typeface, that he wholly hated his own creation. Uh, He said, "I I wanted to create something to make people talk about the difference between what we want from the art we see around us, whether that be personal or corporate, and that which the corporate machine regurgitates year in, year out. Instead, I have truly created a monster, one that no one should ever have to see. Even his metal band logos are more legible than Tragic, Tragic Sands, Chris. I mean, like this, this is, I mean, you, you, I'm trying to sort of labor the point here just for you to understand exactly how horrific this font is. So the, the uses he foresaw for the font are essentially none. none. Uh, and it seems the world agrees with Poe um, shortly after the font was launched. Uh, Reports of nausea across the design community followed and after a series of lawsuits from viewers or I suppose victims of the font um, who described new unexplainable psychological disorders appearing such as extreme anger management issues, arson and perpetual screaming which is admittedly is a new one on me, um, Tragic Sounds was universally banned. The font itself was only used twice before being recalled across all typeface platforms. Uh, once as the font for a printed police report about gang activity written by an informant. Uh, We believe this to be some sort of protest. And uh, once as the typeface for the lyrics insert in American experimental electronic avant-garde hyper-pop band 100 Gex, self-released debut EP, Dirty Protest, spelt with 18 threes and even more exclamation marks, which, to be fair, in this case, was actually a wholly appropriate use of the font.
1: You have hinted on something that we've been dancing around this entire time, Piper, which is an actual description of what Tragic Sands looks like. Could you describe briefly in as safely a manner as you can what it actually looks like?
0: Well yeah, I mean first of all first of all it's 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 not got it doesn't follow the type conventions um, even as far as the name. So Tragic Sans, it's not sans. Oh, so it's got the, the little
1: bits on it.
0: It's got serifs. This is what I was saying earlier. Like it's, it's a serif font.
1: It's got serifs.
0: It's got serifs, fam. Yep, there you go. There you go, right? Already it's annoying. I like serifs. I know, serifs are fine. But if it's called, is it, if it's called Tragic Sans, then it shouldn't have serifs. There are sort of extra flourishes. I think you could call them flourishes. Um, he did a lot of research into um, what it looks like um, it, natural, instinctive behaviour on paper. Um, so, so he he did a, an entire semester almost on um, what um, what sort of angles of arcs are made when uh, when a toddler shits themselves and smears it on the wall. Um, uh, you know, so that, that that's the exact sort of shape that comes from nature in that in that sense. Um, so he used those he used those things. It's just the golden ratio. It it, it, it well, he did actually relate it to the golden ratio. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> toddlers are hacking into the golden
1: ratio when they shear their shit on the wall.
0: Not all of them, Chris. Not all of them, Chris. Some of them aren't, aren't as good as others.
1: The clever ones are. The ones who statistically go on to win Nobel prizes.
0: Yeah, 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 and 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 let you know. Let's just be more to the point. The ones whose shit smearing is more aesthetically pleasing. So he used that as um, you know additional flourishes. Uh, the 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 the, 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 uh, the results from the, the the findings from the research that he did on on uh, uh, toddler shit smearing. Uh, but uh, you know, on top of that, there was the the removal of a lot of the the characteristics of letters as we talked about earlier um and um you know just basically just just throw shit at the page and just like just adding bits here and there you know if 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 he could still see that it was a fucking letter w after removing arguably like the majority of the things that make it a w then he just just like Get some boot polish and just smear it over it, and just like go. Well, that that's that's better.
1: <laughs> so it wasn't designing this on the computer; it
0: was on paper. No, so a lot. Of, I don't know if you know about this, Chris. Is, you know, the, the, it is important background with uh, with this sort of thing is to know how people design fonts. So so sometimes when it's very simplistic fonts with clean lines and things, they design them from the ground up on. Uh, a um, uh, vector-based drawing program like Adobe Illustrator or similar. Um, But if they want to smear shit on the page, they have to do it manually.
1: I see. There's no smear a shit option in Adobe Illustrator.
0: No, as far as I know, there's no hotkey for it now.
1: Well, that's something for the next update. So we've spent quite a long time talking about typefaces. So obviously now the question is, what typeface do you use at the Lockhart Centre for actually genuine inquiry? Garamore. Good. I'm glad. Um, I don't actually know what that is. Let me highlight some text. Is that Garamore? Yeah. Like G. Ga. Yep. G.
0: Yep. G. Yep.
1: Uh, Have you not heard of it? No, um, I don't know what font you're talking about, Piper. You're going to have to describe it to me.
0: Right, well, it's actually a font of my own design.
1: Oh, well, you, you know what, Piper? You could have led with that and saved everyone a lot of time.
0: Well, I was trying to save you time by uh, giving you a one-word response, but you just like...
1: Well, not if the one-word response is the response you know the other person won't know.
0: I don't know, it might have got popular.
1: What would have gotten popular? The idea of people miraculously knowing things they shouldn't know?
0: No, the font. <laughs> I don't know. Word might have got out about Garamore. I don't know.
1: But how? Nobody knows about it.
0: Well, good point. Um, <laughs> right, well, so I invented it. It's, uh, we were using the business standard font Garamond, um, but I wanted something with a little more pizzazz. So being a fan of like early 2000s pop-punk,
1: Obviously, yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I looked at the graphic design choices made by bands of that ilk. What stood out to me most was the stylized way that Paramore wrote the word riot on their first album. It's sort of like if a prisoner was chiseling on a wall using a nail from the bed frame, but really wanted people to know how serious they were. So they went over it a bunch of times. You know, the sort of thing I mean. Basically, Garamore is that, but with the serifs and formal clarity of Garamond. Uh, we use it on everything. It's, like, it's in the notes I'm reading from now. And it, it truly does instill a combined feeling of formality and panic, which is exactly what the center needed before I came along. And let me tell you, with the notes I leave on the fridge now in Garamore, no fucker dares steal my Chicken Club sandwiches.
1: Brilliant. Good.
0: Chris, uh, when, when you're doing whatever it is you do outside of the podcast, what, what font do you use?
1: Well, I like to use courier, because it makes what I'm typing look like an all-timey typewriter, and that's fun. I also like to transpose novels into webdings to see what they look like. So far, I've done Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Pride and Prejudice, and Joseph Heller as a bureaucratic satire, Catch-22.
0: Exciting. Web things, I mean, I, these are, so just for clarification, web things are the, uh, is, it's the font that basically every letter is a symbol of some sort. Is Has anything come up that's of interest when you've been trans, translating these into, into web things?
1: Well, I can read you the first paragraph of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone to give you a sense of what it's like.
0: I absolutely wish you would.
1: Okay, here we go. Mountain cross. Tick, black circle, badge, mountain, cross, question mark, house, bus sign, cross, question mark, compass, present, bisected circle, chili, warship, fire engine, black circle, bus sign, man, bicycle, present, cross, fire engine, warship, bus sign, cross, pepper, forest path. Cross, information sign, bus, present, train, house, cross, information sign, bus, present, chilli pepper, golf flag, present, cross, present, police car, cross, warship, bus sign, badge, train, warship, question mark, tick, bisected circle, train, ambulance, tick, Train, train. Ambulance present, bisected circle. Golf flag, present, cross, present. Police car, present, cross. Fire engine, present, square. Train, compass, bisected circle. Black circle, warship, cross, man, tick, compass, pepper. Train, ambulance, tick, black circle, satellite. Bisected circle, warship, bus sign, bus, present, cross, bisected circle, man, bus sign, square, ambulance, checkers. As you can see, it really captures J.K. Rowling's prose. As an unexpected treat for you, our dear listeners... Piper is now going to do a third fact. How unorthodox. Almost pioneering. And to make this special and unconventional occasion even more exciting, Piper is going to describe the fact through the medium of semaphore. So grab your binoculars, Google image search a semaphore chart, and get ready to be educated. Take it away, Piper and her flags.
0: All right, here we go. You ready? Okay. That's the second word. That's the second word. There you go. I'll just fucking get on
1: with it, Piper.
0: Right, yeah, yeah. You better get annoyed. You started this and it's your fault. Monkeys actually hate bananas.
1: This actually makes perfect sense, given the scene in Escape from the Planet of the Apes, the third film in the original Planet of the Apes cycle. Chimpanzees Zira and Cornelius have just arrived on present-day Earth after leaving future Earth, which is destroyed by a nuclear explosion, and have been captured by the human authorities, who don't yet know that the apes can talk. Scientists make them take part in an experiment where they have to place blocks atop one another to reach a banana hanging from the ceiling of their cage. So Zira builds up the blocks and then just sits there staring at the banana. One of the scientists asks the other why she doesn't take the banana, to which Zira replies the first time an ape has spoken to a human in the present. Because I loathe bananas! Is that what happened here, Piper? Intelligent future monkeys arrived in the present to inform our scientists of their dietary preferences.
0: I mean, I wish that were true. Um, the, the fact of the matter is, Chris, that um, for Planet of the Apes, I don't know if I should break it to you, it's, it's not actually a documentary. It didn't happen, and what actually happened is much less interesting. Would you like me to go into detail?
1: I mean, I suppose.
0: Okay, well, I will. So, new... Primatological research has emerged suggesting that primates sing songs when they eat. George Young, a PhD student from Brunel University in London, along with a team of world-class primatologists, are currently spending a year deep in the Central American rainforest, somewhere near Panama, uh, where large groups of monkeys remain largely uncontacted by humans, aside from a brief visit from the Goodall Institute in 1979. Uh, The team, known as the Primates are looking at how monkeys and other primates communicate. We previously thought of the squawks and chattering they do as very simple barking commands. Uh, But samples of the noises made slowed down produce complex and consistent melodies. Uh, Of course, primates can't speak human languages directly, although some can use simple sign language. So these songs are essentially just tunes sung without words. When they eat their favorite foods, such as nuts, flowers, and small lizards, the songs are louder and more enthusiastic. Um, The emerging research also suggests that the melodies themselves might be a form of language in and of themselves. Uh, Each food type has a specific melody and that melody changes slightly when asking for a specific food or telling other primates where a specific food is. It seems that when eating, however, these songs are a reflex so can't be consciously controlled.
1: Right. So what do these songs sound like? Could you give us a rendition of them now?
0: I mean I kind of can. The songs are just melodies, Chris, but they, they are there are actually uh translations from The earlier experiments where Young and the team have tried to decipher what the melodies mean through showing different food types to the monkeys, images of the researchers, people they might know, etc. It might not be completely accurate. And a lot of the meaning is in the tone and dynamics of the melodies. But I'll try my best, all right? Um, This is a song sung by Ian, the golden snub-nosed monkey, when one of the primatologists was teasing him by hiding berries. Are you ready? Yep. Ooh, won't you give me one of those berries? I saw you hide it behind your back. And now you've given it to Jerry. He doesn't even like them. He's a twat. but Jerry's presumably another primate.
1: I assume so, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, t- to be honest, I prefer the other berries. The ones you had yesterday. The taste made me feel quite merry. You must be hiding an array. Of like a, an array of berries I, I imagine and um, after this like the song becomes a sort of like a lament it gets quieter and slower denoting like annoyance in Ian's demeanor it seems there's common sense you lack this is becoming quite a pain you don't realize i might attack fuck sake i really miss jane that's 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 what we've got so far
1: okay so the immediate question is Because that seems to be a monkey singing about food. Yeah. But what you said also imply that they sang while eating. Yeah. So how do the monkeys sing when eating? Because first of all, as everyone knows, it's rude to talk or sing with your mouth full. And wouldn't they also be in danger of choking if a bit of food went down the wrong pipe as they sang about the food?
0: Well it's more yeah i mean it's it's the thing is when i they're not singing words, this is a translation, so what they're doing is they're humming through their noses um and then there is the odd squawk in between mouthfuls, uh which gives more uh more sort of emotive um uh more sort of metaphysical concepts that they can actually put across in between mouthfuls
1: okay, okay, all right, so they sing happy songs when they've got food that they like, and they sing sad songs when the researchers are withholding food from them.
0: Yeah, they sing happy songs when they're being given food they like, they're singing sad songs when they're being withheld food, but they also sing sad songs when they're being offered food they don't want. So this is what's really interesting. In this new research, is that the songs the primates sing always gets quieter and melancholy when they're offered bananas, even if the primatologists straight up just give them to them without the whole hiding, the, hiding behind the back charade. Like, all the primates studied so far on the exposition basically sing blues songs when they're off with bananas. Um, This surprised the researchers, because, like, um, though we know primates don't eat bananas in the wild, in captivity, I mean, they bloody love them, don't they, Chris? I mean, it's kind of their thing. But apparently, it's all just a ruse.
1: Oh, but now I'm imagining sad little monkeys eating bananas, sadly. Why couldn't they just say something? Well, not say something, obviously. But could they have indicated in some way that they don't like bananas, and then I wouldn't have to be suddenly imagining sad monkeys, which is something I never like to do.
0: I mean, they, they, there are reasons that, that they didn't want us to want us to know that they, they didn't at first. This um, this unexpe- unexpected unexpected behaviour was kind of kind of weird, wasn't it? Like it's it's kind of puzzling. But thankfully, we have ways of communicating with some primates. So. When the first set of findings were reported back to Brunel University by satellite phone, the rumour of primates just not being that into bananas made its way to the Zoological Society of London, who run London Zoo. Amazingly, the zoo has in its possession Jessica the Japanese macaque, a monkey to whom the ZSL taught simple sign language.
1: So what I did, this sad, sad monkey, say, who is sad...
0: Well, members of the society questioned Jessica about the findings and after initially denying the accusation, she had this to say. All right, fine. If you really must know, they're the worst. Bananas, I mean. I I don't want you to think of us as unappreciative or that we don't see you as good friends we can confide in. We do. I mean, just last week, I told Martha, the girl that works on Saturdays, that I don't see her as my man Friday anymore. I don't think she quite got what I was saying. Bless her, the poor love. She's not the brightest of the bunch. No pun intended. But she smiled at me regardless and handed me a fucking banana, which I know, I know she means well, but at this point it's just like ugh, kind of a, kind of like a joke that got out of hand, you know? So ZSL member Colin Kong continued probing Jessica for answers as to why exactly they all seem to perpetuate the idea they like bananas. And though initially she evaded the question whilst softly beating the, st- the ground with a stick, when she eventually replied, Jessica ended up quite distressed and had to be subdued by the end. But here's how she responded. We thought you were being funny. We never knew there were food when you first handed them to us. We laughed because, you know, they, I mean, you have to admit, they, they do kind of look a bit like a willy, don't they? We laughed and celebrated the existence of this silly thing, Clim- clambered up trees, held it aloft and shouted for our friends to come and see the big yellow willy while you were all just looking at a stony face, not laughing, waiting expectantly for something. After several minutes of awkward staring, we realized the truth. And just an aside, this seems to happen time after time, no matter what species, tribe, whatever. You just seem to wait patiently for, for us to eat the silly yellow willy. But it tastes like shit, Colin, honestly. It's not exactly a juicy raspberry, is it? Regardless of the ori- obvious truth, you all just look so happy when we did eat the thing that you celebrated, cradled us for a job well done, and even put us on bloody teabag adverts just for eating a fucking yellow fruit cock. Of course we play along because we really do love performing and hugs. But it's weird how you all fixate on it as our trademark favourite thing in the world or something. God, and you say you're the dominant species. Well, let me tell you, Colin, fuck you and your li- yellow dick food. Fuck it right up the wrong end.
1: Knowing a little about the sign language learned by primates, that seems very complex.
0: Well, I didn't translate it myself, Chris. This is the uh, Zoological Society for London that uh, provided us with this transcript.
1: Oh, so they've embellished a bit.
0: Oh, well, possibly. I mean, I can't I can't speak for them, but I imagine there's probably a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Coco the gorilla called her kitten all ball. So I can't imagine a, a monkey, a so-called lesser primate, string together as complex a statement as what you've just read for us.
0: That's fine, Chris. I mean, maybe I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not a monkey professional, am I? I don't bloody know. But like, that's what we've got. This is the evidence we've got, and it's real. And I didn't make it up.
1: So, given that rather eloquent explanation of what's going on here, what is a monkey's actual favorite food?
0: Well, Chris, is that, that the answer to that question? Is fairly big, right? Since this has turned the primatological community upside down. They've kind of had to start again in their approach to primate behavior. So the study's ongoing. There's a lot more work to be done given this new information. They're currently looking to secure funding to continue their research beyond the initial 12-month period. And Jessica's not been much help now since her outburst. She did ask for a wild orchid to cheer her up. And we know that monkeys do eat flowers sometimes. So maybe this has provided some insight into their actual preferred diets. However, it's also possible she was just being intentionally difficult since she knows full well wild orchids are hard to come by in central London. But the center did contact Young and the team via satellite link up for comment. The current consensus seems to be that they do like most fruits, nuts, flowers, and the odd baby lizard. Even spiders seem to get them singing happy songs again. Unfortunately, however, Young has reported that the research may have been compromised. Uh, Somehow words got back to the monkeys of Panama that the secret's out about their hatred of bananas. They're not happy. Uh, in the latest recording of their research, when asked what food he'd like to eat, Timothy, one of the smaller snub-nosed monkeys, just went ape shit and fucked off up a tree.
1: So, instead of answering the question, they just threw a tantrum. Monkeys, man. So that's not much help to anybody, is it? So clearly, bananas are a hot topic among monkeys. This is a a hot button issue.
0: Well, I mean, it's not a hot button issue amongst them. They know what they they know they don't like them. They just they're just like. Initially, well, for most of most of their, our interaction with them, they were trying to convince us they liked them because it got them attention. It got them like you know, got them advertising deals. It got them cuddles. It got them you know, general just like nice attention. But like now, now the secret's out. They're pissed.
1: So I mean, whatever my own personal feelings are on sad monkeys, I just to reiterate those feelings are sad and. Not liking. The fact that they've kept their dislike of bananas a secret for so long suggests that they have a skill for deception, which begs the question what else are the monkeys keeping from us?
0: I mean, it is difficult to answer that question now. The entirety of our primate knowledge appears to be compromised. Uh, Primatologists are kind of holding their hands up right now and saying they know nothing. But given this emerging controversial research, we can safely say that they could be hiding a whole lot. While the common acknowledgement has usually been that primates are about as intelligent as human toddlers, the center has theorized that they might be much cleverer than that. So there's all sorts of stuff they could be hiding from humans. Maybe they're planning something. Maybe they've looked at our behavior and decided we don't deserve to hold the title of dominant species on the planet. Maybe they've already infiltrated the government, Chris. or One of our number even suggested that our own Prime Minister Boris Johnson might be, might just be a a proboscis monkey in an ill-fitting, badly designed human costume. Let's not forget, however, that in most recent findings they clearly find Willie's funny, so we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves with the whole intelligence thing, although taking that into account doesn't necessarily negate the whole Boris Johnson thing.
1: So what you're saying is there could be some kind of inevitable apop rising on the horizon.
0: I mean, potentially, we don't get excited though.
1: So monkeys don't like bananas. that's the the takeaway from this. Which is weird because, as we've covered, the stereotype of the monkey is the cheeky, banana-popping mischief-maker. In fact, there are a lot of animal stereotypes. Are they all lies as well? Are all the animals sad because they're pretending to do things they don't like just to please their cruel human overlords? What other animal myths can you bust for us so we can make all the animals happy again?
0: Right. Well, you've made some so, quite a sort of last article of the news item. Very sad. Suddenly. Um, uh, well, I mean, there's. I've got. I've got a few, Chris. I've got. I can. I can bust some myths if you want. I can bust the fuck out of some animal myths. All right. So I've got the first one. Uh, there's a big. You know. There's. You know that myth about um, pigs having like massively long orgasms, like three day orgasms.
1: I did not know that. But go
0: on. Right. Well, there you go. There's a very popular myth that I assumed at this point that you'd have known about, that basically pigs apparently have three-day orgasms. So after some uncomfortable research involving, involving piggy sexy times and an N- MRI machine, um, the average orgasm length for a pig is about five seconds, about the same as a human.
1: Speak for yourself.
0: I fucking knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Right, well, this is kind of the point, Chris, right? Researchers have theorised that the orgasm-like behaviour that supersedes this for anything from 30 minutes up to several days is essentially the pigs faking it for bragging rights. So you kind of proved my point, you wanker.
1: It's not a bragging rights, mate. It's the gospel truth.
0: Well, that's what the pigs say.
1: Well, they don't say it, do they? It's not a fucking babe, the porno, is it?
0: No, or obviously they don't say it. They just heavily apply it with oinks and... And looks a look.
1: Any more animal stereotypes you'd like to bust Viper?
0: So I'm sure you'll know about the other the other some of the other rumors about animals. That honeybees, you know bees?
1: Bees, bees, bees. Yes, I know bees.
0: Yeah. So it's often said that honeybees flap their wings at two hundred times a second, and the buzz is the sound barrier being broken multi, multiple times at incredible speed, right?
1: I've heard dubious people say that, yes.
0: Right, there you go. It's completely fucking untrue. It's bollocks, right? The buzz is actually a defence mechanism and it's only done around humans. Bees can actually smell fear and buzz louder when humans are afraid to let them know they want to sting you.
1: That makes a kind of sense, yeah. There you go. That's a useful fact for once. Thank you, Piper.
0: That's all right. For what? Fuck off.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Any more?
0: I've got one more. Go on. Okay, so bottlenose dolphins are said to be even more right-handed than right-handed humans. We spotted this so-called fact at the center and immediately realized it isn't true because if you look really carefully, bottled-nosed dolphins don't have hands.
1: That's true, yes. I've looked at dolphins and the first thing I thought was, you know what, mate? No hands. It is a dark and stormy night. You are travelling home after visiting a sick relative, driving down a shadowy forest path. The headlights of your car illuminate the road in front of you, the rain is slashing through the stark white light, which makes the trees appear eyeing grey and immense on either side. Suddenly, a clunk jolts the car and it rattles to a stop. You have broken down, fishing your mobile phone out of your pocket. You see that there is no reception on this remote stretch of road. You climb out of your car to see if you can pick up a signal, but to no avail. The trees, no more than tenebrous columns now that the headlights have been dimmed, loom over you impassively, and the downpour plasters your hair and clothes to your body. It is then that you notice a light in the distance, barely a pinprick of glimmering orange. With no other prospects, Other than waiting out the night amid the rain and the foreboding gloom of the forest, you start towards the distant spark. After a few minutes of walking, you see that it is a cottage set back from the road. The light, the flicker of a candle, or the dying embers of a fire, visible through a window. You knock on the door but receive no answer. Calling out to whatever occupants made well within yields the same result. A sudden nighttime sound of cracking twigs spurs you to try the door. It is unlocked. You step inside. The fire in the fireplace has settled down to a steady glow, showing bare wooden walls and sparse furnishings. You close the door behind you to protect the fading heat of the fireplace from the damp tendrils of the rainy forest night. The cottage appears abandoned. You survey the room but can see no telephone with which to call for assistance. A door on the opposite wall leads to another room. Perhaps a means of communication resides in there. You approach the door, and as your hand reaches for the handle, the sound of breathing comes to you from the other side, ragged and laboured. You pause a moment, listening. Suddenly, a blow rattles the door from the other side. You step back, startled. In time to avoid injury, as the door bursts from its hinges, splinters exploding from the ruined entranceway. In the light of the spent fire, you can just make out a form in the doorway, huge, misshapen, and trembling with barbarous rage. A deep growl rumbles from whatever the thing is, and you waste no more time. You turn and flee. Cursing yourself for closing the front door, you fumble with the handle, shambling footsteps sounding behind you. You wrench the door open and stumble into the wet night air, just as a murderous appendage swipes at your back, missing you by a hair's breadth. You run from the cottage and into the forest. You dare not look behind to see if the thing is following, though you can hear the underbrush quake at its passing. Then you trip. Your foot is tangled in a root. You scrabble to regain your footing, but the mud is slippery and it is too late. Sharp claws grab at your foot. You shake your leg desperately and mercifully your soaked shoe tears. You manage to stand, leaving the monstrosity with nothing but damaged footwear. A frustrated roar suggests that this is not enough to sate the beast. With one bare foot, you leap back through the trees towards your car. You reach the vehicle and hope that it can serve as sanctuary from whatever is hunting you. Your hands refuse to follow your mind's panicked instructions, and in your haste to gain the sanctuary of your car, you drop your keys. As you bend to pick them up, the scant light of the forest, reflected in the rain beaded paintwork of your car, affords you a glimpse of the trees behind you and the creature emerging from them. You grab your keys from the road and you open the car door. As you're about to climb inside, knives pierce your shoulder as the thing clutches at you and spins you around to face it. You are picked up in two gigantic paws and lifted to gaze into the face of indescribable horror. The monster opens its fetid maw and you scream. Terror dominates your broken mind, but a small part of you is still cognizant enough to hear the horrifying sound that blasts from the mouth of the monster. The horrifying sound of Fact 4.
0: There is a secret society for secret societies.
1: I know loads about secret societies, but I'm not at liberty to say any of it. So I'll just step back and let Piper handle the rest of this fact. All I'll say is I can neither confirm nor deny the truth of whatever Piper is about
0: to say. Rich people love to feel like they're part of an elite, unreachable echelon of society that holds the keys to power, success and control. And indeed they do. The 1% don't need a special club or meeting place where only the greedy can go in order to have that power. They already have it. But they do love a good secret society nonetheless. They have long been a part of Western history, whether that be exclusive London clubs with membership costs running into the tens of thousands, or secret clubs for snobs and poshos like the British Bullingdon Club, the international and very secretive Freemasons, or the Bilderberg Group, Secret societies have always been there, pulling the strings, or at least thinking they are in some self-congratulatory bi-weekly circle wank. Some of these groups are linked by membership or just having a joint weekend away to the Cotswolds to exchange nefarious strategies. But most secret societies operate completely independently and very much in secret, hence the name.
1: No comment. Although I now realise that my reticence might hinder my ability to engage with this fact and facilitate your enlightening of our listeners. So for the sake of argument, although again I must stress that I can neither confirm nor deny any of this, yes, there are many secret societies doing all sorts of secret stuff secretly. But this secret society for secret societies? Is it like a secret society for people who really like secret societies? Like if you're a member of, say, the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the existence of any of which I can neither confirm nor deny, then you can join the secret, secret society society. Presumably such a secret society would be even more secret a society than a regular secret society. So how do we even know about it?
0: Well, let me tell you, Chris, the truth is more interesting than you can possibly imagine.
1: Like I can possibly imagine? So you mean there's tentacles involved?
0: Well, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> Listen, in, t- in 2019, um, Darnall Eclera that's the English way of pronouncing his name, a a reporter for French modern mysteries magazine, Cachet went undercover as an unpalatably rich person to learn about the apparently numerous secret societies situated within Paris. His goal was to infiltrate as many as possible to see if they actually have any power in France and if any are connected. Uh, His first accomplishment was joining the Parisian Freemasons, a group known for their elite connections and free inner city parking. Uh, unfortunately, he was quickly kicked out and blacklisted from any other connected groups that he might otherwise have managed to infiltrate because he, quote, walked like a poor person. It seems the disgustingly rich have an innate swagger that can't be artificially reproduced, unfortunately. Um, with the article deadline looming and nothing to show for it, Eclaira left the Mason's Lodge, took up residence on the nearest bar stool, and didn't leave for three days. On the third day, a strange man sat on the stool next to Eclaira and asked him what was wrong. Being three days deep in Sauvignon Blanc, still not wanting to blow his cover, Eclaira responded, I just want to join a secret society and no one will let me. (laughs) Is that good? Did you like that? I loved it, yeah. Great. Possibly, quite predictably, the strange man at the bar responded, I've got one you can join and it's the best one in Paris. It's like watching Beauty and the Beast. Thank you. They left together, and perhaps naively, the reporter let the man lead him through the back streets of Paris to a wine cellar beneath an abandoned bar in Lower Montmartre district. Expecting perhaps a candlelit room filled with hooded figures chanting or something, uh, Clara was surprised to find the cellar completely empty, save for a guest book on the small table near the horizontal street entrance and a small crooked wooden sign which read, La Société Secret Parisienne pour la Société Secrète, or the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Societies. Feeling a little more sober, somewhat more stupid, and a lot more in danger, Eclair made to leave. But the strange man excitedly told him that this was the only secret society for secret societies in the world. And that although the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Society was in their downtime at the moment, they generally work with leaders of secret societies around the world to pool resources and organise annual Christmas parties. Thinking he got finally got his story, Clara listened to the strange man and eagerly took notes for the undoubtedly riveting article that would follow.
1: Okay, so a lot to unpack there. Quite a bit. You said they organised Christmas parties for secret societies.
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... I mean, presumably
1: these are like inter-society Christmas parties.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, one can assume, there's a lot of assumptions that have to be made in this because there's the thing is, mate, it's it's quite secretive.
1: That comes with the territory.
0: It does. Interestingly, the man, the, the strange guy, strange man, he was he kind of reluctant to go into any detail about the parties, but um, we at the centre have speculated that given how many secret societies have their own traditions, quirks, conventions, organizing any kind of gathering would actually be quite difficult. It's, it's quite the undertaking, particularly at Christmas, Chris. I mean, many secret societies maintain ancient traditions that have died out from living memory as normal things. I bet the Freemasons still still have a Christmas goat every year. Seems like the sort of thing they'd do. Uh, that, that, that'd be difficult to put in the risk assessment form at the very least. And uh, in, in the inherently... Overtly secretive nature of secret societies means that the Secret Santa would be an, an administrative horror show.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so imagine this is good housekeeping magazine. What are the do's and don'ts of an inter-secret society Christmas party?
0: Do make sure you listen to everyone's like all all of the people that are involved, all of them secret societies that have, that have come down like make sure you know exactly what their their traditions are if that's like animal sacrifice you need to take 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 that into account if if there's another society that that like they're not that into animal sacrifice maybe maybe have a period where they're in a different room um if 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 if, if they like um if they've got the christmas goat the christmas goat's an important part of their t- christmas tradition then just maybe warn the other parties as I say, put it in the risk assessment form. Make sure that it's there. Make sure that you know what risks are associated with a Christmas goat in general. You know, those, that stuff might be available on the internet, but you might have to work it out yourself. Uh, if, you know, you know, these are the sort of things, it's quite a difficult thing to organise, Chris. Do you know what I mean?
1: Um, I don't, but I'll, I'll, I'll take your, your word for it. I can neither confirm nor deny that these Christmas parties are difficult to organise. Yeah. So this secret secret society society? Is it made up of the leaders of each secret society? Or does each secret society elect one of its members to represent them in the secret secret society society? Like the UN?
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think given given the um, the lead up to uh, what this secret society for secret societies is has possibly excited you unnecessarily. Um, so... Uh, just to, just, to, just to sort of give you a, a little bit of more of my understanding of what this really is, it seems that the the time the strange man, dude, guy, in the bar, invited Eclaira to his Secret Society of Secret Societies clubhouse was actually like a one-off event. Unfortunately, due to the nature of Secret Societies, the Parisian Secret Society of Secret Societies is not public knowledge. And without a strong PR campaign or indeed anything to draw in the crowds other than perhaps the promise of a well-organized Christmas party and an enthusiastic management-level volunteer base, the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Societies is currently experiencing a smaller membership base than expected. Uh, aside from the strange man whose name has been kept secret for secret society reasons, there is at present only one other member of the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Societies, a uh, reporter for French mystery magazine Cachet, Darnell Leclerc. Uh, According to Éclair, the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Societies has since approached a number of other Parisian secret societies, but due to their secretive nature, denied their own existence.
1: So before the reporter joined, there was only one member of the secret society, secret society. That's not really a society, is it, Piper? A society is a large group of people engaged in a social interaction or sharing a particular interest. So part of their, their ream is organising Christmas parties. So this guy is basically just an office manager, like Joan Harris from Mad Men. So they've just waltzed onto the secret society scene in Paris and gone, right, your Christmas parties are a joke. and You need to learn how to share the stapler. So I, I mean we, because there's definitely more than one of us enough to refer to ourselves as, as a society, are going to whip you into shape. And all the secret society just went along with it. And then the reporter turned up and the guy was like, oh, finally, some help. And they made him like the assistant manager or assistant to the manager.
0: Well, I mean, no one went along with it. I mean, the, these Christmas parties were theoretical. None of them actually happened.
1: Oh, the way you described them was very vivid and made me imagine them in my head, which made me think that they'd actually happened.
0: Well, what, if, you, if you cast your mind back to the halcyon days of 10 minutes ago...
1: oh, do they can do that, Piper. That seems like a lot of work.
0: I said that they were reluctant to go into any detail about the parties.
1: I just thought that's because they were super secret it's a secret society.
0: Well, yeah. And then the rest of it was speculation, which I stated quite clearly.
1: Right. You see, what's happened here, Piper, is I've not really listened properly. And I've just made up what you've said in my head.
0: Why would you do that? Who? What sort of person would do
1: I don't know. It's a problem I have and I need to seek
0: help. Just putting that to... to Put a pin in that for Chris for now. And we'll... Do you want to ask another question then? deal with the therapy later.
1: So all of this about this, I mean, you keep calling it the secret society, secret society, but I quite like the secret, secret society, society as a name.
0: Yeah, no, I'm just trying to work out whether it makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so all of this about the secret, secret society, society, which isn't really a society, but whatever. So all of this has come to light because this uh, journalist, Donald Leclerc who did a John Ronson on the secret, secret society, not really a society because it's just one guy. Well, two of you count on the journalist.
0: Basically, yes.
1: Now, secret societies are, to the surprise of everyone, known for their secrecy, which often extends to retributive actions against those who reveal their secrets. Despite this, has Darnell Laquera managed to get his story published and if so can you give us some highlights or at least point us toward the publications in which we can get those highlights for ourselves
0: yeah I mean yeah yeah the story was published like I, I think you're sort of um thinking of this secret society for secret society sort of in a similar way to you, the way you might think of a a secret society which might have more than two members and might have some uh, at least some sort of uh Clout when threatening people, uh, but that's not really the case here. The story was published, yeah, but it, I mean, it was quickly redacted by anonymous request. Um, not really sure how that works, but there, there are snippets available online, mostly on Reddit forums for conspiracy theorists and fans of secret society. There, there are there are some interesting bits about. Well, I'll say interesting. There are there are some bits of stuff about the society, uh, but like considering the fact that it's only one guy, it's not actually there's. There's not much going on, Chris. Like it, it was redacted, but it probably shouldn't have gone out anyway. There's, a, I mean, I'll go into some of the some of the stuff about this guy, the guy the guy that started it. Like, there's some a lot of the article, to be honest, is about uh, this strange man's personal habits in the time. Um, Dan or Leclerc, um, the reporter, spent with him to get the story before disappearing and presumably moving higher up the ranks of the Parisian Society for Secret Societies. Of which there are presumably only two. Well spotted. Um, He learned of his obsession with Russian nesting dolls, which were everywhere in his makeshift home above the clubhouse in the disused wine bar. Uh, There's a lot of mystery about this strange man and not just because of the secret secretive society of secret society founders. Uh, His accent was initially French, but he occasionally seemed to forget, uh, instead opting briefly for a British accent. Uh, When drunk, the strange man would rave about the existence of Parallel universes go on about seemingly ordinary subjects like museums or chocolate bars that seem to spiral into nonsense. On having his sanity questions, the strange man would insist that he's uh, an academic with a PhD, but, some, but he gets quickly distracted and start talking to himself about Batman or some such nonsense. Uh, the report ends with a, a hint towards the future of the Parisian Society for secret societies, though, Chris. Uh, the goal's not only to encourage secret societies to sign up, but also to create vicious rumors about any secret societies who still haven't become members. This, the society hopes, will create enough tension in the currently tenuous network of secret societies within Paris for those other secret societies to form a collaborative, overarching secret society within Paris which will rival the current Parisian secret society for secret societies, hopefully paving the way for an eventual resolution between the two secret societies for secret societies and the inevitable secret umbrella network of these and theoretically other secret societies for secret societies. Uh, The Parisian secret society for secret societies... For secret societies. It's unknown, of course, due to the nature of secret societies, whether secret societies for secret societies or even secret societies for secret societies exist in other cities in France or even internationally. But if they did, we might one day see an exciting turning point in the collaboration between these two uh, between these groups in the global secret society, known as the secret society, for secret societies, for secret societies, for secret societies then again, maybe this does already exist and the Parisian Secret Society for Secret Societies is just unaware.
1: Right. Good. I'm glad. So you may not be able to answer this, but I'm going to ask anyway, just in case. Are you a member of any secret societies? And if so, what are you safely able to tell us about them?
0: Yeah, literally, I mean, I wouldn't tell you if I was, would I? Like, this is the thing. I've been trying to tell you this for, like, the past half an hour, Chris. It's the nature of secret societies. It's pretty secretive.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, you know, people know about the Freemasons. They know about the existence of the Freemasons and other groups. It's just the actual inner workings that are kept secret.
0: You know, I think that they're false flags, though, Chris. They have all these little Mason buildings dotted around because they're like, "Wow, ah, we'll make them think we've got this secret society, but it's really it's this other one, this this Illuminati one that they're that also they know about, obviously." But like,
1: well, yes, yeah, so that's my point. We all know about it.
0: Oh yeah, maybe there's one. I mean, I'm trying trying to think of one off the cuff, but actually,
1: but can't you think of the one that you're a member of and do that?
0: Well, that's the point. Is that I'm trying to think of one, and I shouldn't be able to because I'm trying to think of one that I don't know about. How
1: can you think of one you don't know about?
0: Well, I mean, there is, there is, there is, Chris. There is talk of in 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 the centre of setting up our own secret society.
1: Okay, and what would that consist of, if you can tell us?
0: Well, I mean, there are there are a number of facts that are far too they're too dangerous for society, which we keep locked away in the fact vaults. Facts that, if exposed, would kind of, they bring civilization to its knees. So some of our staff have suggested uh, creating a secret society which might harness the power of these danger facts with a view to protecting the worst ones from the world and also perhaps more dangerously using some of them to gain power over society. I, I, I mean, I, I voted this idea down in, in last week's morning fact-centric coffee-ridden powwow scrum. But there was, as there often is, talk of mutiny against me. Um, one of them said I shouldn't even be the director of the centre, that it was never supposed to be this way, or some such rubbish. And hopefully they won't all rise up and destroy the world like they seem to want to. They bloody love that, the Unius wankers.
1: Well, that's very concerning, but also simultaneously very exciting.
0: Chris, what ab- <laughs> what about you? Are you? Are you a member of a secret society? Well,
1: I mean, obviously, I really can't divulge the name or nature of any secret societies of which I may or may not be a member. But if anyone else who may or may not be a member of a secret society of which I may or may not belong happens to be listening, then flumpy wumpy doodah, oh great and flocculent floof.
0: I, I mean, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if I want to or should react to that chris
1: well even if you did i wouldn't acknowledge it right that's your lot no more facts for you or you'll make potty in the airing cupboard again i've been your host chris parr and you can find me on twitter at troby norton and piper dawes director of the lockhart center for actually genuine
0: That's it. That's the end of the episode. You've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. What a fucking episode that was. Fucking Jesus Christ. Can you believe it? I literally can't. It was, I died several times during the recording of that and I will probably die several more. Well,
1: I for one wish our intergalactic visitors a safe return to their home.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute.
1: I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at Muinfotoreire, M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E.
0: And you can contact Henri the Amster on Twitter at Henri the Amster.com. You can contact the podcast on Twitter as well, if you really want to after that, at C Cubes, and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. Please be sure to rate and review the episode. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes.
1: I remember you probably could make it up, but we haven't.
0: Honest. Honest. It's all true. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye.
1: Au revoir.
0: Right, so let's get into this, Chris. What what actually happened then? Why did why 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 did they first of all why did they befriend a hamster? And then second of all, why did the hamster then betray them?
1: Why did they befriend the hamster? It was a pet. People have pets, Piper. France isn't some magical land. Where people wander around befriending animals.
0: Well, it's enchanting as is France, isn't it? So I always always think that it's some, some sort of like Disney fairy tale going on.
1: Well, maybe in Disneyland Paris, but outside of there, it's like everywhere else. Misery and drudgery and death. <laughs> Sounds like everybody is getting along fine at the center
0: we're all great friends obviously they're not they're not they they they're not unionizing it's fine they're not rising up against me it's all good they definitely respect me despite the fact that i only have a bachelor of science
1: and he's getting a little restless isn't he who's he the bachelor <laughs>